there's, there's two paths to get to the top, to have that beautiful scenic view. Two paths. One is to take the stair steps, 897 stairs. I walked down them as a kid. I, I didn't walk up. Some of you are, are very courageous. You just walked up. I walked down them when I was a kid. Didn't want to walk up. But the second way is the way that most people take. They take the elevator to the top. I would like to suggest this morning, very simply, that there are, that, that, that there are two paths to heaven. One is the path of human effort. The other is the path of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. One is the path of your effort. The other is the path of the effort done by somebody else, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on a cross that we might have eternal life. And I think our passage takes us there this morning. Our passage is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. As I read the word of God, please stand and listen to what Paul, on the Holy Spirit's anointing, has for us today. Philippians 3, 1 to 11. <clears throat> Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. God's word. You may be seated. My title is Forsaking the Rubbish to Gain Christ. Forsaking the Rubbish to Gain Christ. God gives us what we lack. Paul says God gives us what we lack. And what we lack is righteousness, and he gives us that. His very own righteousness, so that we can know him and walk with him and have a relationship with him. In, 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 Romans, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul returns to this basic theme of joy, fighting for joy. In chapter 2, we saw last week, uh, Dr. Sutherland gave us the, the great hymn of Christ's humiliation is exaltation. The form of God, and he became death for us, and then he was raised, and he seated at the right hand of God the Father. And, and, and then there's an exhortation that we didn't, that we, we've kind of skipped over, to, to, work, to therefore work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But God's at work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. God works through us as we give our effort um, in working out our salvation. And then there's a historical note that Paul has, which is very important as he writes this letter to the, the people of Philippi. He's going to send Timothy, his partner, his um, this son in the ministry, to them to encourage them. He has certain gifts that they needed. And he commends Timothy to them as, as Timothy goes. He also wants to uh, encourage them about godly Epaphroditus, who was one of them, who was from Philippi, godly leader there. He, he was the one who brought the, the, the offering to, to Paul and, 
and brought the encouragement and information about the things that Paul's talking about in this letter, about how they were doing. But he wants them to know that, that while Epaphroditus was away from them, he, was, he got sick. In fact, the text in chapter 2 says that he was near death. He almost died. But God raised him up. God, God brought him back to life. And Paul wants to thank God for him and that God spared his life. So, so Paul, Paul begins uh, chapter 3, verse 1, with the word that people don't like to hear from preachers. So finally, because often when preachers say finally, they're only half done. So Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He wants them to rejoice. He wants to remind them to, to, to continually fight for this joy. Despite the prison experience that he talked about in the first chapter, he's in prison, but he's asking, to, he's saying, I'm joyful, you ought to be joyful. Despite that even some of his colleagues almost died, and he says, be joyful, be joyful. God is still at work. He's talking about attitude here. And then in the, the next couple of verses, verses 2 to 4, Continue, fight for joy despite what's going on here. He, he, he wants them to see that there's opposition to the gospel. Misinformed people, religious people. Clearly, he seems to have in mind that there's, a, there's Jewish opposition here. But he, in, in, even in that context, he wants to continually fight to maintain their joy. Now, remember in chapter 1, we talked a few weeks ago about how Paul was very gracious towards the opposition that was there because, because even though the people were opposing him, they were... They were explaining the gospel correctly. And so he rejoiced. If Christ is explained rightly, I rejoice, even though their, their motives may not be pure. But here in chapter 3, he's angry. He's angry. He's clearly angry as he talks about these people because they're distorting the message of the gospel. Look at what he says. There's several phrases he talks about these people. He, calls, he says, verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, he's clearly talking about about the, the Jewish people here. We see that from, the, from just, they were the ones who always followed after him, the, the Judaizers. Interesting to use the word dogs, because if you know your Bible, the Jews would call Gentiles dogs. That was one of the phrases. If you remember Matthew chapter 15, Mark chapter 7, there's this interplay with Jesus and a woman who's, who's, a, who's, a, who's a Canaanite woman, and, and you know, he says, uh, you know, get, even the, the dogs get the crumbs from off the table. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's, he's and she understands that he's doing that. So the dogs were the Gentiles. Jesus, uh, he, he, he flips it over now, flips the script. He, and, and he says, the dogs, speaking of the Jews. Interesting, very interesting. Evildoers, they're doing evil because they're, they're, they're not embracing this new gospel that, 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 God had, that Paul has brought for God. And then, then he says, look at those who mutilate the flesh. Again, the mutilation of the flesh is a, it's a dig at circumcision because the Jewish people, they saw so much of their identity wrapped up in the rite, the ritual of circumcision. In the Old Testament, God established that rite. And yet in the New Testament, circumcision means nothing. And if you look, study the New Testament and, and trace the word circumcision, it means that the, the rite of circumcision was no longer what, 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 what made per, a person the people of God. It was faith. And so Paul is, 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 is digging, kind of a dig at, at this old system which has passed away, a system that he embraced wholeheartedly at one point in his life, which is where he's going to go as we look at this passage. Because now he says, uh, uh, we are the ones who are the, the circumcision. We're the real circumcision. We're the ones who see circumcision is to cut. He says, our hearts have been cut. Look at Romans chapter 2, circumcision. We're the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, not, not, not the, the ritualistic fleshly worship. We worship through the Spirit 
when we gather for worship today, I'm glad we didn't have to have a physical animal to worship God. We worship through the Spirit because the blood of Christ gives us entranceway. The blood of the Lamb of God gives us entranceway into the presence of God. We worship by the Spirit of God and we glory, we praise Jesus Christ. We don't glory in who we are and our identity, our identity as a people or as a nation. In fact, we're a people from every nation, from various tribes and, and places. We put no confidence in the flesh. Now that phrase, confidence in the flesh, is where he takes off now. He's going to talk about confidence in the flesh. He's going to look backwards. He's going to look forwards. And I think he's going to look upwards. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Paul, as he looks backwards, forwards, and upwards. He's talking about this, the, the idea of righteousness. We're going to see that word several times, starting at verse 6 and following. I want to talk about the word righteousness. Righteousness is, is keeping in line with a standard. It's sometimes a legal standard. Sometimes it's a moral standard. It's keeping in line with a standard. Uh, but it's not an arbitrary standard or rule that God set up. God himself is righteous. It's a character of God. Just like he is holy and calls us to be holy. Just like he is love and calls us to be love. Righteousness is first and foremost a quality or an attribute of God. And he calls us to live righteously, to live justly, to do, as Spike Lee said, to do the right thing. I don't think Spike Lee was a theologian, but he's got it right. Do the right thing. That's doing righteousness. Here we see Paul's, in verses 3 to 4, Paul's confidence. Paul's confidence. Now, I put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, now, his experience in, uh, before he became to Christ was incredible. He surpasses most of ours. He took his faith very seriously. He studied it lived it out, promoted it, but he took no He looks back, now he says he doesn't want to put confidence in that past religious experience. You know, in, in these verses, so 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, Paul, Paul seems to be uh, in, have in mind an accountant's ledger. An accountant's ledger. Now, some of you aren't an accountant, you say, what's an accountant's ledger? Maybe, think of a bank book. Well, some of you don't even use uh, checking account books. You don't, I know, I know, it's all online now, but imagine you know, you have, you have two columns. You have a loss column and a gain column. And that, that's the way ledger books are set up. And Paul clearly has in mind losses and gains. Losses and gains. One column and then another column. And I, I want to look at these verses in terms of, of Paul's spiritual ledger. Because on the one column, he has circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a zealous Pharisee, a persecutor of the church, a blameless under the law. And what does all that add up to? Loss. On the other side of the column, the righteousness of Jesus. That's gain. There it is. That's, that's what Paul wants us to understand. Now let's look carefully again at the lost column. There's a couple things about this column I want you to see. The first four things, he says, circumcised, the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a super Jew, that's his human status. He really had nothing to do with those things. Look at him. You know, his parents were circumcised. He didn't say, I want to be circumcised. He had no, that's his, home, his human condition. But then the last three, a zealous Pharisee. He chose to do that. He chose to be a Pharisee, not a Sadducee or a, 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 another one of the other parties, the esteems or the zealous. He chose to be a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. He chose to do that blameless under the law. He chose to try to live under the law perfectly. And, but he looks at his spiritual ledger 
of who he was, his status, and, and his condition in the world, and the choices he made, both. This is zero. They're, 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 well, negative. They're, they're in the negative column. And then he looks at Jesus. See, he looks at his own loss, his own self-righteousness, the things he did to try to, to, to obtain salvation. And then he looks at Jesus, who purchased salvation by accomplishing righteousness for us and then dying as our substitute. And that's, that's gain. That's positive. It's a very important principle. We are not responsible for how we're born, but we are responsible for how we live. You know, you know, he couldn't change his status, but he could change the choices he made. That's the same true for all of us. We could preach for an hour on that, but I'm going to move on. Okay. Now notice his zeal in verse, in verse 5 and the following. Notice his zeal. His, his zeal for religion was over the top. We heard the scripture reading in, in Acts. It's, it's being tried there. But, but he was zealous, a zealous Pharisee, a zealous Jewish religionist. In, in Romans chapter 10, he, he talks about his commitment to that. Uh, he says in Romans 10, verses 1 to 4, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, talking to the Jewish people, his own people, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. There's our word, a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, it's the righteousness of Christ that gains favor with God, not our zeal. So Paul's conclusion, this is verse 7 and 8, conclusion about his own spiritual life, his old life, as he looks backwards. He sees his testimony, a zealous, zealous Jew, a Pharisee, Pharisee, Hebrew, Hebrew, all those things, counts it as loss, counts it as gain. And then in, in verse 8, the, the, there's a word that's translated in the ESV, rubbish. He said it was rubbish. Now, now, the word in the Greek is that which is left over when you're finished eating. Now, Commentators go both ways on it. Some, some commentators think it's, it's garbage. It's that which is left over when you eat, that which you put in a can. Other commentators think he's talking about fecal matter. Okay? So, so you know, he's talking about dung, refuse, manure, crud, crap. I, don't, I won't go on with other ways that might be translated. I used to talk that way, but I, I know Jesus now. <laughs> But he's talking about the old factory senses, that which stinks to God. He's saying, my life before I met Christ stunk to God. In, in, your, in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about the aroma of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about the aroma of Christ. He's saying, my life was not the aroma of Christ. My life was rubbish. It was dung. Looking backwards, Paul does that. Some have said, I may not be what I want to be. I may not be what I'm going to be. But thank God, I'm not what I used to be. That's what God does in our lives. That's how God transforms us as we come to know Christ through the gospel. Philippians 1, we've seen it says, He will begin a good work and you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's self-righteousness, his overconfidence. Faith Christian Fellowship, uh, we need to be careful about our attitudes in life. And I was pondering and reflecting on some applications for us as a congregation as a Think about our mission and vision to, to celebrate the, 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 the work of Christ and build grace school disciples and serve Penn Lucy Baltimore in the world and, and how we, for 30 plus years we've been seeking to do that. And we've been somewhat faithful as God's given us grace, but it's so easy to become overconfident and proud and self-righteous at what you are and who you are, isn't it? 
God, 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 many people look at our church and look at our website and look and they hear, oh man, it's great stuff going on there. And yeah, yeah, there is some great stuff going on. We have a lot of problems, as you know. We're not a perfect church. We say that quite often. But you know, but when 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 being a diverse church was was wasn't even a fad yet, this church was was holding those values. And, and, and even it, when, when, if it becomes no longer a fad, I hope this church still holds those values. Why? Because it's, we don't hold those values because it's a fad. We hold those values because it's in the Word of God. That the church should not be one culture, but should be made up of people from various cultures who come together in Christ. Our commitment to word and deed and evangelism, not just speaking evangelism, but doing evangelism. Word and deed ministry. Those are core values that we hold. We seek to hold them well. We, we are a chartered member of the CCDA. Um, again, we, are we perfect there? No. Are we, are we seeking to be per, to, to perfection towards the goal? Yes, we are. I was thinking last week we had um, Dr. Sutherland in his comments before we started, if you were here. He made some comments complimenting us about our, our, our worship. And I, and I said, oh, you know, I was, I was thinking about that because I've been reading a book on, on diverse worship. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm getting more ideas and more things that we should be doing, we could be doing. And uh, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, I, his, his statement was that uh, there's some great things going on in our church in terms of worship. People actually sing the songs and don't just, they aren't just spectators. And those things are really true. But when others recognize strengths in your life or in your church, how, how do you respond? That's what I'm talking about right here. How do you respond? See, in Romans, Paul talks about having a sober estimate of yourself. I like that phrase. Romans chapter 12. Humility. Humility doesn't deny that which is. If you, if you deny it, it's, it's kind of false pride. If, some, if God is do, doing, doing something good. I learned a long time ago, there's several ways to receive compliments. One is to say, when someone compliments you, one, you, you say, yeah, that, that is true. I, I, I really got that one together. That, that's not the way you should. That's called pride. Don't do that. And then there's another way that says, nah, it's not really true. No, you're, you're wrong. That, 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 that's false humility. It's a backwards pride. Don't do that. When someone compliments you, you know what you should say? Do what your mama told you to do. Say, thank you. That's what you do. You say, thank you, and you give glory to God. That's the way to respond to compliments. That's what true humility does. Don't minimize those who want to encourage you. Don't minimize those who want to give complimentary confidence, who want to bless you. Accept that encouragement with the humility of Christ. But mature believers understand that any, anything that's good about them is because of what Christ has done. It's Christ who works in you, both the will and do of his good pleasure. Looking backwards, Paul sees all this human effort in his life. And he think, as he, he sizes it up, you know, it, 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 it's, it's like climbing the stairs of the monument. Effort, effort, effort that didn't get him to the top. The next thing he, I think he does is he looks forward. He does it to the end of the chapter. In, in, in verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Skip to verse 10. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's a forward look looking here that the Apostle Paul does. Knowing Christ as Lord. To know, that's a relational word. That, that's heart, not just head. It's not cognitive information, it's relationship. Paul is, is looking forward to maturing in his relationship with Jesus. Now, here he is in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of prison. He might die. But he says, I, I wanna, I'm looking forward. We'll talk more about that next week. He, he's looking forward to pressing on and knowing Christ more deeply. 
to having his heart changed by, by the Holy Spirit. He knows it's about heart transformation, that his heart's not totally right yet. Heart transformation develops a pattern of, of growth and faithfulness to God is what he wants to have in his life, what we all should have. A pattern of growth that, that, that begins with God changing our deeds and then changing the things we say, our word, cleaning our mouth up, and then changing our, our heart, our, the instant, the, our thoughts and the feelings of our heart and our, and our aspirations and affections. God wants to work on us. He wants to grow us. He wants to, to, to make us mature followers of Jesus Christ that we would be witnesses in the world. I remember in, in, in college, my first year in college, freshman year, I made a commitment to, to, to follow Jesus as my Lord and not just my Savior. Now, for some reason, I was part of those people who thought that Jesus was Savior and then he was Lord, and I kind of separate, I tried to separate Jesus, which is impossible to do, by the way, that you can follow him, he can be your Savior, but not your Lord. And I was, but I came, it was at an university conference, and, and um, I came to understand the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that to follow Christ, you have Christ, who's, you're in Christ, he's in you, and, and he is your Lord. That became crystal clear to me, and I committed myself to making that a reality in my life, and by God's grace, that's, that's been true. We are in Christ. We have union with Christ. He is Lord. Kyrios was, is the, the, the Greek word there. And, and Jesus being Lord implies repentance. It implies trust. It implies obedience on our part if he's really Lord and Savior. But I want you to notice this. We're never asked in Scripture to make Jesus our Lord. We're never asked to do that in Scripture. We are commanded to acknowledge him as our Lord, to affirm him as our Lord, to confess him as our Lord, and to live as if he is our Lord, but we're never commanded to make Jesus our Lord. You know why? We can't make Jesus Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord whether I believe it or not. And so we can't make him Lord. So I, I just help, help, us, help us with our language to, to, to really think that, to, that, that we, we're not making Christ Lord of our life. We are affirming him as Lord and we're following him as Lord. And, and Paul wants to, he wants to, I want to follow, look, looking forward, he wants to follow Jesus more carefully as his Lord. He also, verse 2, he wants to identify with the sufferings of Christ. Now, sometimes following Christ as Lord means identifying with his sufferings, literal sufferings there, literal sufferings for Christ. In church history, we've seen throughout the years, people suffering for Christ. I came across a story that I heard in seminary, but I came across it again this week, uh, the 40 martyrs of a place called Sebast. Uh, Roman soldiers, a group of Roman soldiers who became martyrs in their faith in 320 A.D. Uh, it was in Lesser Armenia, which is uh, modern-day Turkey, northwest of the Euphrates River. Constantine the Great uh, issued an edict in the year 13, granting Christians uh, um, freedom, the Christian religion, officially recognizing Christianity as equal with the paganism uh, uh, under the law. But Licinius, his co-ruler and a pagan, continued to persecute the Christians of the East. He also purged Christians from his own army, fearing a mutiny, okay? Now, according to Basil later, um, St. Basil, 40 soldiers who had openly confessed themselves as Christians were condemned to be exposed naked upon a frozen pond near Sebast on a bitterly cold night that they might freeze to death. Among the confessors, one yielded, leaving his companions. He sought the warm baths near the lake, which had been prepared for any who might prove inconstant. One of the guards, set to keep watch over the martyrs, beheld a supernatural brilliancy overshadowing them and at once proclaimed himself a Christian. He got converted. 
threw off his garments, placed himself beside the 39 soldiers of Christ. Thus, the number of 40 remained complete. 40 martyrs of Sebast. Now, the story of their imprisonment and their martyrdom is filled with apparent miracles showing God's supernatural visitation and protection. But in his providence at daybreak, the stiffened bodies of the confessors, which still showed signs of life, were burned. Their charred bones were cast into a river so that the Christians would not gather them up. However, a few days later, the martyrs appeared in a dream to St. Peter, bishop of Sebastian. He commanded him to bury their remains. The bishop, together with several clergy, gathered up the relics. They found the relics, and, and they gathered them up in the glorious martyrs by night and, and buried them with great honor. And they were venerated years and years and years by the big uh, Roman Catholic Church. The, the 40 martyrs of Sebastian. You know, suffering for Jesus is not something that we desire to do, though Paul says he wants to have fellowship with the suffering of Christ. Interesting phrase. But we need to be ready to do that if God calls. So he talks about identifying with the death of Christ. And I think he's talking about being crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Dying to self. Not, he's not talking about, we can't have an atonement like Christ had an atonement. That's not, that's not what he means by identifying with the death of Christ. But he's talking about this idea of, of, of denying our rights, yielding our rights, saying goodbye to our dreams and our desires for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the greatest treasure, who is Jesus. Then identifying with the resurrection of Jesus. Very simple. The resurrection, the power of Jesus, and the hope of the gospel that's there. Now, the core of this text, though, is, is the center of it. The final idea, sandwiched between looking back and looking forward, is looking upward. Verses 8 and 9 that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Now, that righteousness of his own, we could call that, that's, that's like climbing the stairs, climbing human effort, not a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. That's taking the elevator. And our problem is that we don't like grace. We want to... Add to, we, we think our effort somehow is important. Some of you may have heard of a thing called a moralistic therapeutic deism, which some have called the religion of America. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Believing in a God who's kind of there but not involved. Therapeutic, a God who kind of helps me. Moralistic, uh, a God who has some sort of moral standards. Um, uh, Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton uh, in a book in 2005, they coined that phrase as they researched American youth. Uh, they, 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 they interviewed 3,000 teenagers, and, and this was their understanding of what American youth is like. The authors find that many young people believed in several moral statutes, not exclusive to any of the other major religions. It is this combination of beliefs that they labeled moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here they are. Here are the five right here. That a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most religions. That the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And lastly, that good people go to heaven when they die. That is the core belief of America that whether you wear a label of Protestant or one of his brands or Catholic or Jewish or, that is the core understanding of all these, relief, these, these belief systems I believe if Paul were to hear and analyze uh, 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 moralistic therapeutic deism you know what he would call it? Rubbish 
That's what he would call it, because that's what it is. It is not the gospel. It is not embracing the righteousness of Christ. It's our own human effort, trying to understand God in our own way. Matthew chapter 3, you might recall when Jesus was baptized, if you know the story, he was baptized and he looked at John, the baptizer, looked at him and says, why are you in line here? I should be, you should be baptizing me, not vice versa. Jesus said, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. He didn't, die, he didn't get baptized because he was a sinner. Like, he wasn't confessing his sin. He was fulfilling all righteousness. It was part of God's will for his life that he accomplished all that was, he was to accomplish, and, that, and baptism was one of those things. Jesus Christ is the perfect, blameless Lamb of God. That's who he is. He's the substitute. And he, he fulfilled righteousness, the scriptures tell, for us. And he died on the cross as our substitute. See, in the, in the, the Protestant Reformation, there was this big debate 400 years ago. And it, the, the, the question was simple. What saves a person? What does a person do to have eternal life? How can a person be justified or put right with God? Is it our righteousness? Or is it a righteousness that's outside of us? They called it an alien righteousness. When you think of alien, think of monsters and stuff. Don't think of, alien just means an outside righteousness. Is it something in us or something outside of us? The scriptures are clear. A couple of Old Testament verses. Let me just read Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. I will put on you. Another garment. That's the idea. Something on the outside. The Bible, the New Testament talks about a robe of righteousness that's put on us. We wear garments of righteousness. Isaiah 61. You know, when we come to Jesus, the Spirit of God begins to work in our lives. It's called sanctification, making us more like Jesus. But it's, 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 not, that, that, it's not a sanctification that, that saves us, though. It's not that work in our heart that saves us. That's not, that's not what it's about. It's about what Christ has done. It's about the fact that we're justified and have a right standing with God. And I'm glad. You know, he, he, when, when we come to Christ, he sees us as perfect. That's, a, that's an incredible thought. Think of it. That all your sins have been laid on Christ, and he sees you as perfect as he sees his son. That's the amazing truth of the gospel. Now, in Romans, Paul struggles. He shares his struggle of, 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 trying to, of how he worked that out. In Romans chapter 7, the second half of that chapter, he says things like this. I don't do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. I have, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. On and on he goes for, for like eight, nine verses there. And then he, in frustration, he cries out, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who delivered me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he declares, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though there's a battle going on in his heart, he knows he's justified. There is no condemnation because he's in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Paul talks about looking backwards, looking forwards, looking upwards. Just, it's an application, a specific application for you. Let me ask a question. How sensitive is your conscience towards God, towards your own failures in life? This may seem simplistic, but, but as I see it, some people are very, very sensitive to their own failures, and some are not. 
In the Christian church, there are people that some have called activists and some that are called pietists. Activists and piet activists. They were active. Pietists. They, they were into piety. More contemplative. The pietists look inward all the time. They never feel they have enough to offer, that they're good enough. They grovel in their own sin, focus on their failures. My suggestion, if you're a pietist, go serve somebody. Go, go help the poor. Go help the needy. Go serve somebody. We encourage that. that, 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 that that's one small way that you can get out of the, this focus on self. But, but many are activists, and they're always trying to do outward things, always trying to, 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 to maybe appease a conscience that feels they've never done enough. Maybe that's you. That's my tendency, to be an activist. I, I encourage you to take some time. Step aside. Do some self-reflection. Look at your heart. Look at your heart more. Study yourself more. Look to Christ and hear the good news that he gives in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who weary and labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, activists need rest. They need to rest from trying and trying and trying. In Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds or goes beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to have a righteousness that's greater than even the righteous, holy, seemingly perfect scribes and Pharisees, he says. You've got to have Jesus. You've got to have Jesus. That's the point. So look upwards. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. The only place in the universe where there's that kind of righteousness that satisfies the Father is in Christ. I remember as a child going um, to department stores, and uh, they had the escalators. You know, you can take the stairs with the escalator, and the escalators, you know, you, you know it's, it's, it's moving stairs. It's kind of cool, you know. But as a, as a kid, you know, instead of just taking a step and being on the escalator and letting the escalator take me up, as a kid, what do you do? You want to try to walk up the escalator, even walking past people that are there. You know, you know. And, and, and I was thinking about that in terms of this, this picture, because I think that's the way some of us are in our Christian lives. I think that's the way we are. God, God says, rest. There's a way up. Just get the elevator. We want, we're looking for the escalator because we want, to have, we want to have some effort. We want to have something to do with getting to the top, don't we? I encourage you, rest in Christ. Rest in the gospel. Rest in the gospel. The picture of the, uh, of the, the monument, you'll see um, that there's long lines around the monument when people, want to, when people are trying to get there. And sometimes when you're in line, you're saying, you know what? I'm tired of waiting in line. Let me just walk up the steps. You're probably about halfway up the steps, you wish you'd have waited in line. I think the way a lot of, that's the way a lot of us are in our Christian lives. We work and work and work. We need to just rest and remember that the effort, the energy, is not ours. It's done by somebody else. And we, we have this table each month to remind us of the simplicity of this truth, that it is not our righteousness. It is not what our hands have done. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. This table is the Lord's table to remind us of his grace. This is for those who have repented before God and come to the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that we rest in him and we serve out of that rest, not to, be, not to receive any kind of a rest from him. It's for children that have been invited by their parents and through the session to, to participate. If you're a visitor, you're not a member of this church, but you know Christ, you understand the gospel, we invite you to, to participate with us as well. 
If you're a believer and yet there's, there's, there's a hardness in your life, there's a, there's a sin you know that you don't want to forsake, we encourage you to, to pause, to, to, to repent of that sin now. Or if you, don't feel, if you feel, can't repent, don't partake of the elements because the scriptures say you receive poison to your soul, not the sweetness of the spirit into your soul. May I ask the officers to come forward as we continue. So, we, so as we continue, we're going to have a time of just a silent prayer to, to say, Lord, am I ready? Am I worthy? What does it mean to be worthy? To be repented, to be broken, and to be open to the Lord's using you and coming uh, to, your, to your heart in this way through, through the elements that we hear. Let me, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the simplicity of this sacrament as we, we focus not on who we are and what we've done, but on who you are and what you've done, that you have died on the cross that we might have eternal life. And that because we are trusted in you, we have that assurance, we have that confidence. Lord, I pray for any who are here who don't have that confidence. Lord, that, that as, as, as they perceive, as they, as they watch what's going on here, this drama of, of, of the gospel, they would say, Lord, save me. Lord, give me the salvation that I may know and have the confidence and peace that my life is, is, is with you. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. So this is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. He took the cup, 